chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Amen. You may be seated. Today we hear the word of the Lord as we have the privilege to do every week when we gather together. If I had my way, um, I would preach every day and I would listen to sermons every day. And I do listen to sermons a lot, but I hope that you'll be eager to hear the word of the Lord today. I pray also that we would see the hand of God at work, that the word of God and the work of God would work seamlessly today, that you would hear God speaking and see God acting in your life. So that when Moses, for instance, went to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and said to him, Yahweh, the God of the enslaved Israelites, says, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. Pharaoh wasn't only hearing an announcement of words. He was hearing a delivery of a demand that came with a demonstration of power. There was something happening in these words. These were God's words working with God's hand Revealing these powers, these miracles, these plagues, even these signs of his greatness. So like this announcement that these gravitational waves that have been detected in my home state of Louisiana and Peter's home state of Washington state, that they were detected with just little blips of a laser being interrupted for a moment. That that's an indication of something happening a billion light years away with power that's greater than all the stars in our universe combined, I mean, this is what we have. We have a word coming into our eardrums, like Moses speaking to Pharaoh, and the airwaves vibrate his eardrum, and he just thinks those are just words. But what's actually happening is the power that runs the universe is at work behind the scenes, moving and shaking and doing something. That when the word of God comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, he's actually... Redeeming them in those moments, in these plagues where he's saying, I demand you to let them go. I'm announcing that they must go free. He's actually freeing them in the process. He's liberating them with his very word of power. He's essentially saying, if you just switch the nouns and the verbs around, my people go, you're free. His word is acting, it's living and active, as Hebrews chapter four tells us. Philosophers say that a word is performative if it's a word that doesn't just indicate something or inform us of something. It's not just informative, but it performs something. It does something. For example, when I married my wife and I said, I now take you to be my wedded wife, those words were not just informing her or anyone else. They were enacting the promise that I was making. When you hear someone say to you, as some of you have heard before, you are now under arrest. You know, something's happening to you that you wish wasn't happening. Amen? Amen? I hope that doesn't happen to anybody in here. I've uh, not been put under arrest, but I've been handcuffed before. Something happens. You feel it. Now, if, if I were to say to you, God's word is gospel. It's good news. It's a message. That would be true. That would be important. It's an announcement, but it's more than an announcement. It's actually a demonstration of power, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians. It says that the gospel is power for salvation. It's, it's in Romans chapter 1. Power unto salvation for all people, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and even Egyptians. 
A performative word. Not just an informative word. It performed something. When Jesus spoke to Lazarus, the dead man, who had been dead for four days in the ground, in the grave, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. That was a performative word. Amen? When God speaks to you or me and says, you are forgiven of your sins as far as the east is from the west, that's a performative word. You hear what I'm saying? See, when God says to his people, my people, you are free, they're free. And that's really my earnest prayer today, that we, God's people, would be free. That as I preach the word of God, as you hear the word of God read and explained, you would be free. Something would happen. You would see God's hand move in your life. During the civil rights movement, black and white freedom fighters, or freedom riders as some of them were called as they would drive down south to protest, peaceful protests, they were still called agitators by the racist segregationists in the south and other places, you know, stirring up trouble, saying things with their words like, we deserve these rights, these truths are self-evident to us. Why aren't they evident to you? We need equal rights and civil liberties. And when they said those words, guess what? Things started happening. They were called agitators, right? Agitation. Things were getting shaken and moved around. And that's what God's word does. It agitates. It doesn't just say something. It does something. It brings liberation, freedom to those who are in slavery. And so my prayer today is that whatever sin or oppression or injustice or fear you have today that's enslaving you, that's holding you down, that you would be free as you hear God's word proclaim freedom in Christ to you. Like Moses, we need God's word to come to us in power because we're weak people. Moses said in the previous chapters that we've been looking at over the past few weeks in Exodus, I don't see how this is going to work out, God. I'm, I'm really a weak man. I, I'm doubtful about this this thing that you're telling me I'm going to do, setting an entire nation free from slavery. And so in chapter 6, if we just peek back at chapter 6 real quick, we see that chapter 6 tells us a lot about Moses' doubts. And then suddenly it's interrupted, the whole story of the Exodus is interrupted with a genealogy, you know, the family tree of how Moses was connected to his father and his grandfather and who his kids were and all this. And you're thinking, boring, why am I reading about a genealogy? And I'm so glad that Brad didn't preach on that last week. What is a genealogy doing in this story, right in the middle of it? Well, to answer why is it here, it's most helpful to answer where is it here. So where's the genealogy? It's right in between two statements of Moses' doubts about himself. Chapter 6, verse 12, and chapter 6, verse 30, Moses says, How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? I have uncircumcised lips. That means my lips are just weak and unclean. I can't speak properly. I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do. How is this going to happen, God? And God says, well... Hey, let me remind the reader with a genealogy how this is going to work. Let me remind you, basically, Moses, who you are. Don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember the Nile River and the basket your family put you in? Don't you remember your sister and your mother, how they looked out for you? And then I took care of you. I delivered you from death, Moses. That's why I've called you to be the deliverer. I know who you are. Know yourself. Know your connections. And, and in the genealogy, it actually focuses more on Moses older brother Aaron than it does on Moses himself. It even ends with one of Mo, uh, Aaron's descendants, Phineas, who was a high priest in Israel. And if you think this is just boring, I mean, when you read the word Phineas, it's just like a hyperlink in your internet connection. Click on Phineas and go to Numbers 25 and see how boring that is. I tried to click on that hyperlink. My internet filter blocked and said, uh-uh, R-rated. Numbers 25 is an R-rated story in the Bible. This is not boring. 
This is Phineas, the priest who was doing crazy things. I'm not going to tell you what he did. Just read it for yourself in Numbers chapter 25. This, this is a beast of a priest. This guy was awesome, and he was the one that secured the covenant of God's peace for the entire nation in Numbers 25. And God says, this is who you are, Moses. This is your family. I've chosen your family to be the prophetic family, the priestly family, to deliver your, the people, your people. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, Yahweh says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He actually doesn't say, I've made you like God. That would be crazy, right? Literally, he says, I've made you God to Pharaoh. Even crazier, right? The word like isn't in the original Hebrew. It's just, I have made you God to Pharaoh. What does he mean? There's only one God. Why would God share his glory with another? No, he's saying, I've invested you with all that you need in your mouth and in your hand, that staff. That's what you need to defeat Pharaoh, the king of the world. You have a brother, Aaron, and I have made him your mouth, your prophet. He will speak and you will lift your hand. And that's my word in my hand being displayed to Pharaoh, the king. You think you're weak? You're doubtful? Don't forget who you are, who I've made you to be, who your brother will be for you. As you stand before that king together, things will be performed. Power will be displayed. The world will change, Moses. Some of you guys have a mom who might have told you something like this. I brought you into this world and I'm, I know I can do what? Take you out of it. Big Mama says that. You listen, right? That's kind of what God says to Moses earlier in the story. I brought you in. Who gave you a mouth, Moses? He says. Who made your lips? You better go speak to Pharaoh. And But now he's saying something like, I brought you into this world. Now I'm going to change the world through you. Trust me. There's power at work here. You don't even know about it. You see a little blip. You just hear a little vibration. But things are happening, Moses. My hand is with your mouth. I'm with you. Yahweh says to Moses, I've made you and I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And I've made Aaron like a prophet to you. And the reason, the purpose of my power being displayed through you, the punchline you could say of this passage, chapter 7, verse 5. Look at it with me. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Stretch out your hand, Moses, he says throughout the story. Stretch out your staff. Throw your staff down. Bring your staff to the Nile River so that it turns to blood. Part the Red Sea so that you can cross over with your staff. When you stretch out your hand, I'm stretching out my hand. When you speak the words, I'm speaking my word. You are like God to them, and I will display my mighty acts so they might know that I am the Lord. That's why I'm doing all this. This is the whole point of the Exodus story, so that the world might know that Yahweh is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ. We're going to see a few trends in these plagues today. We're just looking at only nine of the plagues today. Only nine of them. I know some of you are really tired right now, and you're thinking, only nine. Great. You saved that last one for next week. Yes, I did. If you're tired, if you're sleepy, do whatever it takes to stay awake. Stand up, walk around, be like our friend who was visiting, Nora, the little one. She was running around. I don't care. I'm, I'm the most charismatic Presbyterian I know. Just stay awake so you can hear the word of God so it can do its powerful work in your heart today. We're, we're going to see three trends during these nine, yes, nine plagues that we're looking at now in brief form. 
The first trend, there's three trends we're looking at, and then we'll look at the plagues, okay? The first trend is this. What's trending in the story of Exodus? Well, here's one thing. The hand of God is invincible. It's invisible, but I said it's invincible. That means it's powerful and no one can stop it. The second thing is we're going to see the hand of God is irreplaceable. You can't replace God. You can't copy God. The third thing we're going to see is that the hand of God is irresistible. No one can leave unchanged or unaffected after being a part of this story. First, we see this trend in the ten plagues that the hand of God is invincible. What I mean is that God can't be stopped. He's undefeatable. This is a God contest happening between not Pharaoh and Moses or even Israel and Egypt. This is a God contest happening between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And the question is, who is really God? Who is really in control? The Egyptians thought that Pharaoh was an incarnation of God. Pharaoh came thinking that he was in control of his nation and his own destiny. God came down to prove him wrong. This is a ten-round contest. It's like WrestleMania. You know, I know Mar- 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 Martel, you like WrestleMania? You- you've seen it before, right? What happens? You know, sometimes they, they bring all the guys out at once. I'm, I'm not a big wrestle fan, wrestling fan. I'm not. But I know about it. They bring all the guys out, and sometimes they have the tag teams where one guy goes to the mat and he tries to get the other guy, slam him down. But he loses, he goes and tags his other guy, Big, big Jim or whoever. He comes down, you know, stole cones, stole cones, you know what I'm saying, stole Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin. They're just tagging, they're, they're working the mat. One guy goes down, he gets the other guy to go. This is exactly what's happening with the Egyptian gods. In each of the plagues, there's ten of them, there are ten gods represented, and each god goes up against Yahweh and is defeated. Up against Yahweh is defeated. He brings the next guy in. Same thing. Defeat after defeat. God is invincible. He's the only God in the story still standing in the end. He goes all ten rounds. This is a showdown, a God contest. Who's really in control of the universe? In this theme, we see that God is willing to move heaven and earth to save his people and to judge his enemies. What I mean is he's using creation. There are a lot of creation themes in these plagues that you see coming up. And God is saying, I'm going to use my creation to destroy my enemies and to raise my people up. I'm going to put my creation in reverse even. So that the blessings of creation that came in the beginning are now reversed and you're experiencing the curses of how bad it is when the earth collapses on top of you. When you're not standing in dominion over it. So the true creator uses creation to work his redemption for his people. He's invincible. Second thing we see is that the hand of God is irreplaceable. You're going to see this theme throughout each of the plagues. No one can replace God. No one can copy God. And if you try, it's simply a counterfeit. We see the magicians, as we'll read some of the the stories, the magicians of the Egyptians, the, the con men, you could say, try to be like God. They try to do what God does. And in the end, they all fail. God's reality, both literally and figuratively, swallows up the counterfeit efforts of Egyptian religion. The magicians try to reproduce the plagues, but it's ironic and it's sad that each of the plagues they reproduce, they're simply making things worse for the people of Egypt. They say, oh, God can turn the water to blood? Well, I can do that too. Well, thanks, Einstein. Now there's more blood to deal with and we don't have water to drink. Oh, you can bring frogs out of the Nile? Great. Thanks, Brainiac. Now we have more frogs invading our homes and our kitchens and our bathtubs. See, they bring more misery 
and no mercy to the situation. They can't stop the plagues. They simply make them worse. Counterfeit. Now, I just want to say as a point of application here that we all try to do the same things, though. Now, each of you, myself, we try to pretend to be God at different points in our life. We think that we're in control. I'm going to replace God in some way. I'm going to do it because I don't think God can. I don't think he's going to come through for me. He's let me down in the past, so I better do it my way. I know it's a way he told me not to do it. It's even called sin in the Bible, but I've got to do it. I've got to be like God right now in this moment and take care of myself. Or I've got to make excuses and replace God, even take God out of the Bible. When we read about plagues, it's kind of embarrassing. So I make excuses and I try to explain the plagues away. Or the idea of the wrath of God you know, against his enemies. Who wants to talk about that? So we, we replace God with another God, a God of love, where there's no judgment, there's no wrath. And we have scientific, scientific explanations that we say, well, these probably weren't really miracles because who believes in miracles anymore? You know, these were natural phenomenon happening, we say, and we try to replace the truth of God's word with anything else but God. But at the end, we will all see that there's only one God and that he's irreplaceable. Some of us overanalyze the Bible. Some of us overanalyze our lives instead of trusting him and and doing simple things like praying and reading his word for life and instruction. Some of us are on different ends of the spectrum today. Some of us are maybe familiar with the street life and we say, you know what, somebody hurt me. Somebody actually killed one of my family members, one of my homies or something, and I've got to take this into my own hands. I've got to do it this way, my way. God says, you can't be God. Vengeance is mine. Some of us in our hearts, we're bitter towards someone who say, I won't forgive them. I'm going to do it my way. God says, you must forgive them. I've forgiven you. Some of us are even scientists, like the people working at the LIGO Observatory in Livingston, Louisiana, or Washington State. And we say, I will set my life up and my experiments up so that I can live life without God. I can explain the beginning of the universe without God. Some of the scientists are saying, give me more money so I can build bigger machines so that I don't have to have God. We do all sorts of things to replace God. God says, I'm not replaceable. The hand of God is essential in our lives. The third theme that we'll see from these plagues is that the hand of God is irresistible, which means there's really no neutral place in the universe. You can't say, okay, I'm just going to call a timeout and I'm going to live life apart from God for a while and I'll just be neutral about his word, his claims, the Bible, the gospel, the sermon today. There's really no neutrality is what the story is teaching us. That when God comes to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, or when he comes to the Israelites, everyone must decide. You have to either decide for or against. You have to either say, okay, I'm with the Israelites, and I'm going to go ahead and escape in this Exodus event and get out of these plagues. When God sends hail upon the people, hail down upon the cattle, the livestock, the horses and camels and donkeys, he gave the Egyptians a choice. He says, I'm going to give you a heads up. Here it comes. There's going to be some hail falling tonight. Bring your animals into the barns, okay? Some Egyptians feared Yahweh and believed, and they rescued their animals and themselves. Others said, who's Yahweh? Whatever, we're staying out, and we're just going to do our own thing. And they experienced the the judgment of God. God says everyone must make a decision. No one can claim neutrality. Pharaoh, how did he respond to God? Throughout the story we see, Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
Sometimes it's put a little more generically, his heart was hardened. Other times it's put more forcefully and directly, the Lord hardened his heart. He was stubborn. God said, oh yeah, I'm going to make you even harder. And not only are you going to be stiff and stiff-necked and stubborn, but the word hardness also implies, as we've seen before, condemnation. He was under God's judgment. His heart was heavy, and it sunk in the balances on the scales of justice. He did not stand before God's judgment. He was condemned. He was judged. He was destroyed. In chapter 9, verse 3, we see that the, the hand of Yahweh will fall heavily upon the people. He says, I will bring severe plagues, is what my translation says. But chapter 9, verse 3, literally is, I will bring heavy plagues. Pharaoh has a heavy heart. I will bring my hand down heavy upon him. And he will see. There's no neutrality. You have to say yes or no to God. Thankfully, for those of us that sit here today, and for many of our friends and family, if we're hearing the word of grace today come from the Bible, if we hear the word of God's mercy, there's an opportunity for us. The decision hasn't been made fully and finally. Some of you have said, I, I choose to follow Christ, and I will be on the Lord's side. And some of you have not. Well, the hope is that for you or anyone else, there's still time. There's still patience from God's heart offered you. And so we have an opportunity today to experience not just the heavy hand of God, but the, the hand that lifts us and remakes us and protects us from his judgment and from sin. And so in Israel that day and in Egypt, God made a distinction. He said, those who believe can come out and escape the judgment. Those who refuse to believe will pay the price. There's hints in the story, strong hints, and even hints later in the Bible, that Egyptians came out with the Israelites, that some believed and left with the Israelites and were saved. They made the right choice in this theme that the hand of God is irresistible. They didn't resist. They said, yes, we will go with Moses and the people of Israel to freedom. Now let's turn to the plagues quickly, one by one, plagues one through nine, and just get a summary of what's going on here. We've seen the key themes which will help us work our way through them. But if you need to wake up or shake the sleepiness off, go ahead and stand up, do whatever you need to. Here we go, plague number one. It's not really a plague, it's more of a sign. The sign of the staff turning into a snake. Now a few weeks ago we saw how God gave the sign to Moses and said, I'm going to take your staff, the staff in your hand, throw it to the ground, it becomes a serpent, and pick it back up and it becomes a staff again. Pretty cool trick. Okay, go to Moses, I mean Moses, go to Pharaoh with your brother Aaron. Both of you have staffs. Throw your staffs in the ground. What happens? They become serpents. Look at chapter 7, verse 10, 11, and 12. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now, how did that happen? What's going on here? Many commentators refer to how Still in Egypt today, you can find guys on the street corners who can take a cobra and pinch a certain nerve with just the right pressure that the snake stiffens like a rod or a staff, like a stick. And it's in a paralyzed type state. And then if you unpinch the nerve or you know, maybe slap him against the, the ground again, he starts wriggling and becomes a snake again. Maybe that's what happened. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe there were some occultic, demonic powers at work. Maybe these secret magic arts dealt with real forces of darkness and evil. And maybe there was some real appearance of a snake. 
I don't know exactly what happened. What we do know, though, is the point is not how did they do it. The point is what happened after they do it? Well, verse 12 tells us, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Well, okay, good try, guys, but there goes your staff. Oops, swallowed up by mine. Still, Pharaoh saw this really cool sign, and his heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh predicted that he would do. So the snake, the cobra, on the headdress or the crown of Pharaoh means that Egyptians revered the snake. They believed in the power of the snake. They believed the snake was a god. God is saying, okay, who's, who's God? I'll swallow your gods up. And the same word swallowed up is the same word used in chapter 15 when the Red Sea swallowed the armies of Pharaoh up. We'll see who's really God today. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any, what? Come on, quote First Tomlin, chapter one, come on, Chris Tomlin. Our God is higher than any other. Right? Amen. I mean, his power swallows up the other powers of the world, the other gods. Counterfeit power might be real power, but it's just a burst of power. It's not sustainable. It's not really real. The second, which is really the true first plague, is the water turned to blood. Chapter 7. Look at verses 17 through 19, just to get a glimpse of it. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. I guess so. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take out your staff, stretch out your hand all over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Turn on your tap. Blood. Go to the YMCA. Blood. Lake Michigan. Blood. Even in your vessels of wood and stone, which might be another way of saying all over the place, or it might be a reference to the idols of Egypt, which were made out of wood and stone, because the priests of those days would actually take their little idols down to the Nile River and they would bathe them, you know, get them nice and clean and shiny. The priests bathing their idols might have been in the process of bathing when they're just dumping blood over their idols. There's blood all over the place. And what's going on here? Well, once again, the Nile River was a religious river. It was a deified river, a river that implied that God is here. That when you look at the Egyptian gods, there was a god of the Nile River named Hapi. Or Happy. I'm going to call him Hapi because he probably wasn't very happy after what happens here. He was a bearded man with a swollen pregnant belly. Kind of weird, right? Gender bending stuff going on. Man with a beard, pregnant belly. And God says, to this God who symbolizes fertility and life, the Nile River swells up with life, giving life to the people through its fish and its, its waters. I will turn this God of life into a God of death. I will kill this God. I'll, I'll make this a bloody river, this Nile River. And so the, the drinking water is gone. The fish die. You have to dig around the Nile River to get your water like a little well in the ground. Yahweh triumphs over Hopi. He says... Look at who's in charge of the life-giving source, the Nile River. It's me. And once again, this bloody river hints at something to come later at the Red Sea when the Red Sea would really become red with blood because God would swallow his enemies and destroy them in it. Then there's the second plague, chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, the plague of frogs. Read with me verses 3 and 4. 
The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. You know, as you're making your pizza dough, even there, the frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. Now, some of you I know like frogs. I like frogs too. This is not cute. This is not nice. This is disgusting. I mean, have you seen the movies, the Ten Commandment movies that are out there, you know, of gods and kings or other movies? You see millions of frogs hopping out of the Nile River, invading the land, jumping into your bed with you, into your bathtub with you. You can't get away from them. You're stepping on When I was in college in Ruston, Louisiana, Louisiana Tech University, back in 1996, there was a plague that came upon the city of Ruston. Crickets. Everywhere you looked, there were crickets. Everywhere you stepped, there were crickets. I kid you not, almost every time I took a step on the sidewalk of my college campus, I was crushing little crickets. Not that I wanted to, but there was no way around it. They were everywhere. The, the city stank for weeks of like dead fish because there were dead, squished cricket guts everywhere. The, 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 the concrete was stained black with cricket guts. It was disgusting. This is what is happening in Egypt. Frogs everywhere. And, and of course, the magicians say, oh, well, you can bring frogs up from the Nile. We can make blood out of the river, too. We can bring frogs up, too. How do they do it? How do they make water turn to blood or frogs come out of the Nile? I don't know. Maybe frogs are easily persuaded. I don't know. I mean, I did see a David Letterman show one time where this little girl brings lizards onto David Letterman's stage. Have you seen this one? She takes the lizards and she rubs them on the head and they freeze in this paralyzed state. And she dresses them with like little doll clothes, puts them at little tea party setups, puts them in her Barbie car. And then they stay in that position until she rubs their head again and coaxes them back into reality. I mean, maybe frogs are easily trained. I don't know. However it happened. Thanks a lot. You're bringing more frogs out of the Nile River into our homes and our beds and our kitchens. That's a problem. The second plague also reminds us of the Egyptian goddess of fertility and childbirth, whose name was Heket, who had the head of a frog. Heket was in charge of the Nile River as a part of this fertility religion. Heket's job was to make sure the crocodiles ate enough of the frogs so that crowd control, population control, there weren't too many frogs. God's saying, oh, frogs are your gods? You like frogs? Okay, I can give you some more frogs. Here we go. And the frogs just jump out everywhere. God says, who's in control of the Nile River? Who's in control of life, fertility, population control? It's me, not you. Why can't they get it after the second plague? But what do we read after... Seven days of bloody water and after days of frogs piled up dead in the streets of Egypt, stinking in the land. Verse 15 says when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, oh, a little break. Hey, the frogs are gone. Still smells really bad. What did he do? He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh said. The third plague, the gnats. We'll cover this one quickly because it's just a short few sentences in the text. Verses 16 through 19. Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it becomes gnats in the land of Egypt. And so they did. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. Come on, guys, let's make some more gnats. There aren't enough already. You know, let's make some more. But guess what? They could not. So for the first time and the last time, 
They try and they fail. They can't produce the plagues. They can't reproduce and counterfeit them anymore. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. This is real. Wake up, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's almost like, you know, we could all say it together by this point, right? It's going to happen ten times the same way. Okay, so then the fourth sign. Chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. God says, let my people go or else, in verse 21, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. These might be stinging or biting flies, not just ordinary house flies, the kind you get at the beach, you know, that sting you, the horse flies, sand flies. This is not a nice fly. And I'm going to send swarms of them to you and your people, your houses. The houses of Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. But on that day... I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So flies in Egypt, no flies in Goshen where the people of Israel live, the slaves. That's pretty cool. God's making a division, a distinction, a separation. Pharaoh's heart, once again, was hardened. Then there's the fifth sign. A severe plague on the livestock. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 9. Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go so they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very heavy plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction again between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. What's happening here? Maybe anthrax, maybe some other disease. We don't know exactly, but the cows and the camels just start dropping dead. Not every single one of them. He says all the livestock, but there are clearly livestock left after this plague that get hailed on and other things happen to them later. What he's saying is it's only going to happen to the Egyptians. All the Egyptian animals are going to suffer, but not the Israelites. Or he's saying it's going to happen on all types of livestock. All these livestock will be affected by this dramatic plague. And in doing so, God is once again striking at the heart of Egyptian religion. Because who was the God that looked like a cow? The God of Egypt, who was once again a fertility God, a God... Who is supposed to be Egypt's mother and sky goddess, Hathor, was in the image of a cow. So God is saying, okay, we'll take your mother God and destroy her. There's only one God, Yahweh. Then there's the sixth plague. After Pharaoh hardens his heart again, God says, okay, let's keep, keep going. You want to keep fighting? Okay, round six. Ding, ding. I mean, I wanted to ask one of you guys to come up here with like a placard that said six on it and like, do this, like each time it happens, but thought, you know, might as well just tell you. The next plague, six, here it comes. What does he do? Take soot from the kiln, throw it into the air, and it becomes festering boils on the skin of the people and the beasts. Verses 8 and 9. Yahweh said to Moses, take the handfuls of soot from the kiln, those very kilns where the people of Israel had been baking their bricks in their back-breaking labor as slaves. Take that soot, which is a reminder of your oppression, and throw it back into the face of Pharaoh. Take that, Pharaoh, 
and he will break out in the worst boils and acne and oozing, festering sores, and the whole land of Egypt will be affected by this. Disgusting. Guess what the magicians did? They couldn't, obviously, reproduce this. They didn't want to. They did the oldest magic trick in the book. They disappeared. You don't hear from them anymore. They say, we're out of here. You're on your own, Pharaoh. We're not going to even stand here and counsel you anymore. Look at you. You're hideous. We're all hideous. We've lost. Give up. Cry, uncle. This is the true God. Pharaoh, what does he do? Hardens his heart once again. Now, at this point, some people begin to see a natural progression of the plagues. Plagues one through six. They say, look. You don't have to explain this miraculously, they say. You can see a natural progression. I mean, check it out. The water turns to blood. However that happened. And then what happens when water turns to blood? Well, frogs jump out. The fish are dying. Frogs don't want to die too. They can't survive in bloody water, so they jump out. Then what do the frogs do? They die in the streets. And then what happens? The plague starts to spread. You know, The animals start to die because this disease has passed on. Because the flies and gnats are carrying it around the land. So then the livestock are dying. And then what happens when the livestock die and the people have been affected because they're like, you know, hugging their cows and feeding them. They get affected, too. Then boils break out on them. Natural progression. It does have a nice natural progression to it. But what about the Israelites? They haven't been touched. They haven't been affected. Sounds pretty miraculous to me. What about the timing of it? God told exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and it happened. When Moses said, stop, it stopped. It's the power of God. It's the hand of God at work. Through natural phenomenon, for sure. But powerful, miraculous, unstoppable, irreplaceable, irresistible. But Pharaoh keeps resisting. And so next, something happens that's not naturally related. There's no connection here. But he says now a meteorological event will occur. Hail and fire, maybe lightning, from the sky that will destroy your plants, your animals. And so right there in chapter 9, verses 16 to 18, we see the power of God at work. And God says, here's why I'm sending hail. For this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from this day until now. So then he gives the command of mercy. I won't just give you power. I'll give you mercy too. He says in verse 19 and 20, so go get your livestock out of the fields and bring them into safe shelter so they don't die. And in verse 20, whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. And they were spared. But others didn't. And they paid. Power over the Egyptian god Seth, who was in control supposedly over the wind and the storms. God says, I am God. And again, the Israelite crops were fine. They were untouched. When you had trees broken and bruised all around the land, plants destroyed, the Israelites continued without consequence. And so then Pharaoh realizes the consequence of his sin, and he says finally in chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, he calls Moses and Aaron and he says, Hey, this time I know I've sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. He says, go ahead, get out. But guess what? By the next day, he had hardened his heart again. Verse 35. And he did not let the people go, just as Yahweh had predicted. 
he confesses his sins, but he doesn't repent. You know, it's possible to confess your sins in your private worship time or here in our public time of worship. Confessing your sins, but you don't really mean it. You know, hey, I've sinned. Oh, well. You know, or I've sinned. I don't like that fact, but there's no repentance. There's no turning away. Pharaoh sees the consequence of his sin, and who doesn't want to turn away from the consequences of sin? The hail, the blood, the frogs, the nets, the boils. You know, confession has consequences too. You know what the, the consequence of confession is? Obedience. Obedience. When you see God's power at work, you turn away from your sin in obedience to him. That's true repentance and true confession. Well, then there's the, the eighth sign. Second to last one here. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. Locusts swarming so thick, brought in by this powerful east wind, so God's using natural phenomenon to bring a plague of locusts like you'd never seen before. So thick they darkened the sky and covered the land like a blanket, and they began to munch away whatever plants were left that the hail hadn't destroyed. See, some of the plants had been still in the ground. They hadn't budded and sprouted yet. And whatever had then grown up, the locusts came and finished those off. During this eighth sign, we see a hint of creation again. Genesis chapter 1 uses the same three words, Plants, fruit trees, and every green thing, all destroyed by locusts. What it's reminding us of is that the God of creation, who's in control of the universe, is reversing the patterns of creation and the blessings of creation to destroy the hope of Egypt, to take away all their props and all their helps so there's no place left to hide. He says, I'm going to turn creation on its head. Frogs teeming out of the waters like the animals teemed on the earth that God initially created. Plants and green things and fruit trees destroyed, no longer giving food for man to eat. Hitting him at the basics of life, where it really matters. But what does Pharaoh do? He begs for forgiveness in verses 16 through 21, but the same way, he soon changes his mind. As soon as God sends this, this, this strong wind and drives the locusts back into the Red Sea, so that it says not a single one was left alive, all the locusts drowned, Pharaoh changes his heart, hardens his heart again, and says, forget it. Stay right here. You're my slaves. God says, okay, remember those locusts drowned in the Red Sea. That'll be you in a few days. It'll be you. The ninth sign, the last one we're looking at today, is chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, the darkness over all of Egypt. Verse 21, Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived in the land of Goshen. Dark as a cave, no flashlights, no cell phones, no candles, no nothing, completely dark. In Israel, business as usual. In Egypt, people shut down. They had no option. They couldn't see anything. Moses, standing before Pharaoh, can't see him. Okay, bring the lights back on, please. Let there be light. So the light comes back on. What does Pharaoh say to Moses in these final statements? Verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10. Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. Now the lights are on. You can see my face. Just get away from me because I don't want to see you anymore. The day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. 
Pharaoh has no clue what's about to hit him next. He'll be begging for mercy, begging for Moses one more time to get out of the land. Just for real this time, go. This is the true exodus that we'll see next week when we look at the 10th plague. But what does this have to say to us? Just in closing, I want to provide a couple applications. What do we do with the nine and the 10th plague as Christians today? As we see God's hand moving in power, creative power, decreative power, destructive power, saving power, power to judge and power to heal. What do we do with this? Do we say, well, I'm on the Lord's side. Pharaoh, he's a bad man. There are a lot of bad people out there and they're going to get it one day. You know, they're going to get the plagues, the boils, death itself. They're going to get it. Is that what we should say? Well, there is truth that God is a God of judgment, that he does punish sin and he does act completely righteously when he does it. But what should we say in response to this? Here's what I would submit to you. I've just heard the word of the Lord describing the power of the Lord. I've just seen the hand of God at work in history. I've seen it at work on the screen through scientific instruments calibrated just so. I've seen it at work in my life. I see it at work when I read the news. I see it when I walk outside and look at his creation. I see it all over the place. The proper response is to humble yourself. God said, I've exalted myself, Pharaoh, so that you might be humbled. But you can continue to exalt yourself, pretending to be God. The proper response for us is to bow down low in worship of the living God and to pray for many others to do the same. The proper response is to go to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh himself, the Lord of creation. Jesus Christ, who said, I will turn water not into blood, but into wine to display my glory to my disciples. I will take the creation, the waters of the earth, and I will walk upon them, defying gravity. I will go into the darkness of the cross and into the darkness of the ground for three days, just like the Egyptians experienced, three days experiencing death for my people. But miracle of miracles and the power of the universe reversing death itself, Jesus rose from the dead for us. The proper response is to say, look at Jesus, the Lord of creation, the Lord of life, the Lord that could do whatever he wanted. He took the plagues for me. He bore the wrath of God for me. Jesus, the Lord, Jesus, the King, Jesus, the only true God, bore the plagues, spilling his own blood, entering the darkness by the powerful hand of God being crushed for my sin and for yours. Jesus faced the darkness, the earthquakes, the ultimate reversal of creation on the cross for you and for me. Jesus conquering the grave for you and for me. Who is this God? That should be our response. Who is this man? Who is this Lord that would have such mercy on me? And such power for me? Romans chapter 8 says that the whole creation is groaning. Just like a Hebrew slave. 430 years of slavery. An entire History that the cosmos, that the universe has been groaning under the weight of sin for its liberation. And it says it's waiting for that day when the children of God, that's you and me, will be redeemed and liberated from our bondage to decay, to plagues, to death, and we'll be set free. And we can't say, look, I'm good and they're bad. Moses was good, Pharaoh was bad. I mean, Moses had a hard heart too. God had to change his heart too. We die too. We get acne too. We get boils and blisters and cancer too. Christians do too, but we're not under the wrath of God. 
We're not under his condemnation because of what Jesus has done. He says, I know that you're groaning. I know that you see pain and suffering in this life, but there's hope for you. The hand of God has been outstretched to you in mercy. Take it. His hand is powerful. It's irreplaceable. It's irresistible. Would you take his hand of mercy and walk with him today? Let's pray that we would do that together. Father, we're waiting and we're groaning that you would liberate us. That you would not put us in judgment over other people. Or think that we have somehow escaped your judgment because of our own righteousness. But we thank you for Jesus, who is the only true God. The Lord of the universe, who was under your judgment for us. Who bore the wrath because of our sins, so that we might have life and mercy. Lord, we've heard your word. It is a word that informs us of what the good news is. But we don't want just information. We want transformation. We want a demonstration of power. So would you please change us? Give us the performative word of God today to make our lives new, to set us free so that we can hear these words and truly be set free. As you said to the people so long ago, declare over us, Lord Jesus, let my people go so they may worship me. Go, my people, you are free. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and sing to our God.